This evening's talk is <clears throat> about equanimity, balance and equipoise in the mind, the heart, living with the heart of greatness, even in times of stress, uncertainty, and turbulence. Here in Taos, we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. And this sacred mountain is on, this particular sacred mountain is on the edge of the town of Taos. And it's sacred to the Tiwa Indians, the Tiwa people. And it's also a sacred simple symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune uh, to be able to look out at it and uh, take it in in every season, any time of the day or night, any day of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain falls on it, hail falls on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance. The mountain of impartiality. The mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy. A lively energy. But only exists in relationship to all of the other myriad lively energies that are constantly changing and that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing and holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so begins our exploration of upekka, the Pali word for equanimity. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddha's teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections. It's also one of the 
four Brahma Viharas, one of the four divine, divine abidings. Metta, Karuna, compassion, Upeka, I mean Upeka, equanimity, and um, Mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy. It's also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, investigation of states, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's also one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana. The first uh, is ikagata, or one-pointedness, and the other is equanimity, upekka. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before he attained, before the bodhisattva attained full awakening, before he attained full enlightenment. As the about-to-be Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night, with an evenness and a balance in his relaxed and very powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily, as happens in the deep concentration of jhana, or destroyed completely. Finally, as occurs in the final completion of vipassana practice, and who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha. Here, a bhikkhu or a yogi or a meditator whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, 
to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upeka is onlooking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the middle, by staying in the center, and watching things as they arise and as they pass. On looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. One attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces of the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember uh, as a child that I really loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or the teeter-totter, as we used to call it, with another child. Both of us would be suspended in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in mid-air. And there was always a, uh, a certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me in the moments when this would take place. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind, strength of heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. Because of the small container, the water will be very, very salty very harsh, undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a large body of water the size of the Rio Grande River, which is the largest river here in New Mexico, 
it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness or the great amount of wateriness that the salt is put into. And of course, as each one of us know, life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind, the spaciousness of heart, with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences, as well as the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and to know through our meditation practice to look on with balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the other three immeasurables, the other three divine abidings, metta, karuna, and mudita, including the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, as well as the arising of other wholesome states such as patience and faith, that they are all met, they are all experienced and seen, all looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful uh, little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen uh, with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the Tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, uh, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can bring uh, this teaching immediately close right here and now in relationship to our cook and the food here, our amazing Amy Tenzo and her amazing food. (laughs) And we can also uh, bring this teaching into our life when we're back home. And this is from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. A dish is not necessarily superior because you have prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you have made it with ordinary greens. 
When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. And he goes on. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk or the mouth of a yogi is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung. Now, this is at the time of Dogen, of course. We don't use cow dung in our oven. (laughs) Just as an oven burns sandalwood for incense and cow dung, for cooking without distinction, our mouth should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and find that the mind is tranquil, serene, and this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. The mind isn't listless, it isn't agitated, but rather it's interested and appropriately energized. At those times there isn't any interest in or necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing without attachment that this is what's occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time, is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or of the factor of equanimity. Thus, in fact, then contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and composure. During the time and culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. And these are his words. One is like the charioteer who looks with, looks with equanimity on horses, progressing evenly. More likely in our case, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and to know to take in what's in front of us 
and what's passing by with ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired by the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as various habits of clinging, attachment and identification that can create a block, create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety, in sometimes great subtlety, of the habits of attachment and identification, aversion, and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing concentration and understanding to blossom, deepen, and to eventually mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome mental states such as patience and confidence and metta and along with the developing, and I spoke about these the other day, vichara, piti, sukha, and ikagata. And as each of you know, until equanimity is really, truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago now, for the whole uh, of the last two weeks of uh, uh, many months of retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity, and I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as uh, a Brahma-vihara, as one of the sublime or divine abidings, silently repeating uh, one equanimity phrase over and over and over again, first directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. And the phrase that I used was, I am the heir of my kama, meaning I am the heir of all of my deeds, all of my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. Well, by the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance and quite a deep sense of evenness and neutrality in the mind and heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, well, there's equanimity here. seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, well, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. (laughs) If this was a Zen session, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check uh, my equanimity. But this is is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thoughts just disappeared. Those thoughts just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled in true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. 
I, I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers. Uh, although actually the note was from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And the note said, we would like you to give the dana, the generosity talk, to the yogis tomorrow. Well, at that point, this was quite a few years ago, I was not teaching the Dhamma at all. Uh, Not intending to, not wanting to, not even considering the possibility. So when I got that note, uh, for a moment, my uh, cultivated equanimity flew right out the window. And my heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew right in. I can't, I can't do this now, said my old habit. I've been silent for so many weeks, deeply into practice. I can't get up and all in front of all of my fellow yogis and speak. It's impossible. I can't do it. And then the heart and the mind relaxed and really saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, ah, yes, this is my equanimity test, of course. And I can do it. I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. Until Upeka has matured, we lose and regain the balance and equipoise of equanimity over and over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, boredom, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt or disapproval or not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests as quieting the attachment and fear that comes up in relationship to others. Along the way of our practice, when equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer really true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and aversion to stick to when they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean? Worldly-minded indifference. 
produced by ignorance. It occurs when we don't clearly see or clearly see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of mindfulness rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead, we're blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life, seemingly equanimous with it all. This is not upaka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye, or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning karma, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visual object, visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha didn't really mince any words. He was very direct and straightforward and succinct in his teaching. So, a personal story. When I first began living in Taos, there were so many beautiful handcrafted things in the store windows on our one main street. And at times, when I would look in these uh, shop windows, many times at first, uh, I would get quite infatuated with what I was seeing and sometimes getting caught in the delusion of really thinking I needed what I was seeing. You know, that very painful contraction of the must-have mind. So I decided, after a while of getting caught over and over again, to do a practice with this. And so I would walk along the street and look in the shop windows, and watching the process of my mind and my heart. And I did it over and over and over again, over a long period of time. And eventually, I began to be able to just appreciate the beauty of what I was seeing without needing it, without wanting it, thinking I needed it, and without wanting it. And I also grew... Uh, quite uh, uh, nicely with appreciating the amazing uh, creative capacities of the human beings who were making, had made all these objects that I was uh, seeing. It took a while, though, to get to that point. I'm sure that every one of us <clears throat> has experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed, dislike, 
boredom, resentment, anger, fear, or disappointment. The glossing over, the ignorance, ignoring uh, these states and pretending to ourself the pretense of equanimity, the kind of, well, it doesn't really matter attitude or, well, it's really all just fine attitude or I'm totally okay attitude with all of this. And often that those attitudes accompanied by a slight or maybe not so slight uh, moving away, a contraction or an inner sense of grasping that we very well may not be aware of. This, of course, is not equanimity, but it's actually indifference, the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upeka. And of course, as each one of us knows from our own experience, that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear, grief or resentment, it's extremely difficult or it just isn't even possible to look on at those moments with a really true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind, not on dullness, not on indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mood. And it's not produced by exertion. It really is the result. It's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, training the heart through the development and blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, loving-kindness, compassion, and investigation. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are classically called the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard that come our way throughout our life at various times. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes harsh tests and it's actually quickly able to regenerate its strength from our own inner resources. The resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. In some words from the Buddha, from the Sutta Nipata, develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame. But do do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. There's a, an amazing practice that was, uh, I've been told, uh, and maybe still is, I don't know if, if it is still, occasionally 
uh, uh, practiced by the Hopi Indians. Now, I certainly don't recommend this practice, um, but we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is really one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this, uh, this is a, a description of the practice from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, all 60, about 60, all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly towards an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon, this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their head to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed how they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, to the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear and greed and aversion. And will also possess the power of renewing itself. Only, only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening, in that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into insight, ripen into understanding, these are the root of equanimity. And the first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds of life, how they originate, how they come to be. This is the understanding of karma in Sanskrit, or kama in Pali. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, suffering, and the experience of ease are all a result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and then on back and back and back. This is kama. 
This is our kama. We're born, we spring out of the womb of kama, we could say. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're undeniably the heirs of our kama. So for instance, simple example, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet it remains with us. And in some way will inevitably return to us as our due inheritance. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this lifetime in any given moment is due to our own mind. Our motivations and our responses or our reactions to phenomena. Not due to our hopes and our wishes for ourselves. And not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is one of the roots of equanimity. When we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind in relationship to everything that happens around us and within us, what is there to fear? This is then an opening, an opportunity for the heart, for the mind to begin to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. That in fact, we're not trapped on the karmic wheel, running around and around and around like a little mouse. But of course, as each one of us has experienced fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now. 
even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the heart, of the mind, is a very good deed, really the best, the very best. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's really been important for me in understanding karma or kama is that it's always, always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. Many of us have heard, well, too bad, it's too late. It's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than the increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our heart, in our mind, the mind becomes more tranquil, becomes more serene. As we take or engage in this refuge, we begin to gain the great strength of evenness and balance and patience of the heart of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice, with the development and blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we have the strength to endure when we need to. And when that's clearly called for. And we have the possibility to not continually, blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of Kama can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we move, as we more and more clearly see our craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance. A wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, begins to arise. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of deliverance 
of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from greed. The Pali word is tanha, and it's, uh, it's often uh, translated as insatiable thirst. The escape from insatiable thirst. So the first insight that's the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of kama, or karma. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of anatta, not self. From this perspective, there's no one, there's no self performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion, it's the wrong view of a separate, solid self, a separate me that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So, for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours, if it's criticized or blamed, one thinks, I am blamed, and equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something that we've done, and we think, I've been praised, I'm a success, equanimity is disturbed. If this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way we want it to be, one usually often thinks, my work has failed. I have failed. And equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one thinks, what's mine has gone. And equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion with the identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an ease, easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mind, with that thought itself maybe being quite a daunting thought. It's not easy, of course. And so we begin with the small things from which it's easy to detach oneself. And maybe gradually working up to the possessions and the goals and the identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts was for two months and I was the first visiting teacher there and that was quite some years ago. And I was there for long enough to really settle in 
And yet again, there was this awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in small and simple and sometimes kind of surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. So I lobbied for a telephone, which in moments felt like it was for me. And there was quite a degree of tension, of kind of stress in this. But in truth, the phone was for the many, many, many others who would be using this house over many, many years. At one point, I was told that it was okay that a phone uh, would be put into the house. But when that would happen was unknown. (laughs) So at that point, there was a pretty quick letting go. No more thoughts about it occurred. And I relaxed. And I really, truly felt that it didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not, because it really wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. So during the time that I was there, that two months, at one point it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room. And Jeannie, the housekeeper, came over to the house uh, and brought the rug catalog over for us to decide which rug to order. It clearly wasn't a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone, for everyone. And I noticed that it was such a difference, quite a different experience in the heart with this, this, not this subtle contraction of something being mine, being for me. There was an openness, a spaciousness, no contraction, no clinging in the choosing. And it was a lot more fun that way. So the small things at first, the small things that maybe we think are ours, and working up to giving up, to letting go of, to relinquishing other other stickier thoughts of self, beginning to relinquish the identification maybe with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are, our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we let go of, that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go of. Beginning with small aspects of our personality. Qualities of seeming minor importance. And very slowly, through our practice, working up to letting go of the identification, practicing detachment in relationship maybe to those emotions and aversions that we may regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a really wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, And in this case, he's talking about the critical mind. He says, oh, there's my personality. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me, even including 
positive emotions or aversions and even special gifts which we might regard, might be identified with as the center of our being. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am. To whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief? Consequently, the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind and heart, is rooted in understanding. The first understanding being the that of karma or kama, and the second being anatta. Equanimity is also seated and grows along the way of our samatha practice, our concentration practice, and blossoms in a very profound way as the deeper states of concentration, jhana, occur. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, equanimity, isn't cold. It isn't heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but out of a fullness or a completeness of connection and understanding. And at some point, in maybe many lifetimes or maybe in this lifetime, our practice of equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, and mature, concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other. Along with an imbalance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. With all of these occurring at that point with what has been called a single taste. The single taste of awakening. Liberation. Liberation from the kilesas, from the cankers. Deliverance from suffering. At that point, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the defilements and insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Insight, understanding at this point, produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, 
a purifiedness, a clarifiedness within one, which is manifesting due to one's capacity for on-looking equanimity. The Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or, or unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but increase or decrease of the great ocean is not to be seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. And we practice with sincerity and with diligence. We sit with a growing understanding and blossoming of insight. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all this, it's inevitable that mindfulness and concentration and all of the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout and blossom and eventually mature within us. It's our kama, we could say. And so closing this evening's talk with two short pieces from the Udana, which are the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, it is not perturbed, unaffected, excuse me, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When his, her mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her? How can suffering come to him? And the second inspired utterance from the Buddha. For one who clings, motion exists, meaning the movement of the mind. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place between the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two. 